Christmas time looks different in different parts of the world. I want to share with you what Christmas looked like in 1852 here in South Carolina. I'm going to read from a book that I can almost guarantee 99% of you have not heard of. It's entitled The Golden Christmas, written 1852 by William Gilmore Sims, South Carolina's premier antebellum author. I'm going to read a few excerpts from the last chapter of the book where he's describing what Christmas Day would have looked like on a South Carolina low country plantation. Merry Christmas, Major. Merry Christmas, Uncle. Merry Christmas, Grandpa. Merry Christmas saluted him under all sorts of affectionate titles from their wild, gay, innocent little voices and how graciously the old sultan submitted to be tugged at and hugged by the children. How he laughed and tossed them up and suffered them to sway him to and fro until they all came down upon the carpet in a heap together. Talking about the grandfather of the house who had dressed up as Father Christmas as he was called. Some people now call him Santa Claus. There was no growling or grundling or complaining, no rebukes and wry faces. But giving himself up to the humor of the children... He became, for the moment, a child himself. And measurably he was. He had kept his heart young, and could thus still identify himself with the child humors of the little throng about him. He knew what he had to expect and had prepared for them. His pockets were a sort of fairy wallet, such as we read of in the Oriental and German fables, which is always giving forth, yet always full. Balls, knives, thimbles, dolls, and boxes, pretty books with gold edges and pictures, very soon unfolded themselves from his several pockets, and each of the happy children took what he pleased. They went off laden with treasures and making the house ring with cries of exultation. At sunrise Christmas morning, the eggnog passed from chamber to chamber in the house. Why eggs at Christmas as well as Easter? There is a significance in their use at these periods, which we leave to the theological antiquarian. They are doubtless typical. Enough that, even in the Bulmer barony, the old custom was religiously kept up. Every guest was required to taste at all events. The ladies mostly, the dear delicate young things in particular, were each content with a wine glass. Some of the matrons could relish a full cup or a tumbler, and there were some of these who would occasionally find their way into the contents of a second and without getting in their cups. We are to graduate the beverage, be it remembered, according to the capacity of the individual, and he alone is the intemperate. We may add the fool also, who takes a power into the citadel which he cannot keep in due subjugation. In short, it is best not to over-moderate with the eggnog. The bell rings for breakfast. The hour is late. All are assembled. There is joy in all eyes, merriment in all voices. 
What a singular conventionalism established by habits so prolonged for so many hundred years, by which, whatever the secret care, it is overmastered on this occasion, and the sufferer asserts his freedom for a brief day in the progress of the oppressive time. There's more description of Christmas morning, and then Sims describes Christmas dinner. Such a dinner. The parish, famous for its dinners, had never seen one like it. It is beyond description. Two enormous tables occupying the whole length of the spacious dining room were loaded with every possible form and variety of food. But the turkey was not allowed, as is usually the case in our country, to usurp the place of honor on this occasion. There was a couple of these birds to each table, but they stood not before the master of the feast, at our entrance, the space on the cloth was vacant at his end of the table. He stood erect, knife in hand, evidently in expectation. This is talking of the grandfather of the household. He had one of his fam famous old English cards to play. One of the turkeys was at one, in one end of the table where I was required to preside. The others were interspersed along the two boards. Presently, we heard solemn music without. Then the door was reopened, and the steward, napkin under chin, made his appearance with an enormous dish. Listen to this. My friends, says the grandfather, in a speech that was evidently prepared, and which we abridged to our dimensions, I am about to restore a custom common in all the good old English establishments, even within the last hundred years. The turkey has been raised to quite unmerited honor among us. I am willing to assign him the place upon our table, but I shall depose him from the first place hereafter. That properly belongs to the boar's head, in other words, pork. The boar's head was the famous dish at Christmas in old England, not the turkey. The turkey is an innovation. He is purely an American fowl, and was utterly unknown in Europe until after the Spaniards found this continent. He is a respectable bird, particularly in size, but in favor cannot rank with the duck or even a well-dressed young goose. There is no reason why he should supersede the boar's head. I am willing to give him the first place on New Year's Day as representing a new era in a new country, but on Christmas, as a good Christian, I am bound to stick to the text of the fathers. Their creed I give you in their own language, as it was chanted 500 years ago. The steward who placed the boar's head on the table brought it in with the sound of music and chanted as he advanced the following Christmas carol, which, by the way, I have, with the assistance of my young friend, somewhat ventured to modernize to correspond with the vernacular. Lo, the boar's head, be that spoiled, the goodly vines where many told, merrily, masters, be assold, I pray you all sing merrily. The boar's head, you must understand, is the chief service in this land, and here it lies at your command, clad in bay and rosemary. With song we bring the wild boar's head, he spoiled our vines with mustard spread. The beast is good and gentle dead, pray masters, eat him heartily. 
There is much, much that is different about Christmas time in the 21st century versus Christmas time in the 1850s. It used to be that Christmas spanned 12 days from December 25th to January 6th. Twelfth night fell on January 5th, Epiphany, celebrates the time at which Christ, the newborn Messiah, is displayed to the public eye after his birth. The kings from the Orient do not visit Christ on Christmas Day. They visit him on Epiphany as we celebrate on Twelfth Night, January 5th, January 6th. It used to be that people had live trees in their house. Now Christmas is characterized by plastic, by electricity, by things that are man-made rather than things that come from the natural world. The traditional Christmas tree of choice here in the South, particularly South Carolina, was the cedar tree, the red cedar, ditch bank cedars as they used to be called. There was no such thing as going to a Christmas tree farm and buying a tree. People had farms back in the old days. They would simply go out into the woods and find a cedar, cut it down, put it in the house, and decorate it with homemade decorations. I grow weary of the commercialized, manufactured world that we have at Christmas time. It's almost exhausting. So I hope that you appreciate just a few texts from uh, William Gilmore Sims about what Christmas used to look like here in the American South. Now, what does any of this have to do with pipe smoking? Pipe smokers have a special, special affinity for Christmas time. We oftentimes bring out our favorite pipes and our favorite tobaccos. But I want to read uh, from a book written by Richard Carlton Hacker entitled The Christmas Pipe. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may not know about it. The Christmas Pipe, a collective celebration of pipe smoking, at, pipe smoking at Yuletide, published in 1986. I just want to share a few lines from this. Ask any tobacconist to describe his busiest season, and he'll say Christmas. Ask any pipe owner what time of year does he think most about his briars, and he'll answer Christmas. Ask any non-smoker when he would be most likely to buy a pipe for a friend, and he'll reply, Christmas. Indeed, there are some who only smoke pipes at Christmas, while others only smoke special pipes at Christmas, and still others only savor certain tobaccos at Christmas. But whether one smokes a bowl a year or a bowl an hour, it is an established fact that most pipe smokers derive the greatest amount of inner satisfaction from their pastime during the Yule Tide. This next paragraph speaks volumes. This observation should hardly be surprising, for pipe smoking and Christmas have shared a similar history. They both have been outlawed and glorified, desecrated and hollowed, shunned and revered, and through it all have managed to survive in many different forms in many different lands throughout the world until today. They may very well be two of the universal bonds that hold most of civilized humanity together. Perhaps that is one of the reasons these two spirits, that of Christmas and of pipe smoking, are so closely associated with each other. 
as I sit and ponder Christmas time and what it means to me. The coming of the Savior, the Messiah, the man who split the historical timeline. I'm thankful for the blessings of the natural world that surrounds us, the blessings of family that are close by us, and the blessings of a Savior that knows us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for stopping by for a few moments tonight. Remember the reason for the season. I am Alan Harrelson with the Old Carolina Pipe Cottage. Merry Christmas to you and yours. <laughs>